As you're being seated, if you will find your Bible and open it up, and we will be in Luke chapter 6 today, I do want to make mention that on Wednesday nights, beginning uh, this Wednesday, I will be leading a Bible study uh, on the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis called In the Beginning. That will begin at 6.30 on Wednesday nights. We'll be there for an hour each week, and I know several of you all have been part of those Bible studies in the past and I would encourage you to come again this Wednesday night, 6.30. You'll be upstairs in the second floor, last room on the right, uh, in the beginning as we go through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. Well, congratulations is in order. You say, well, for what? Well, you have survived the great hailstorm of 2016. You survived another Texas summer. You made it through. You lived through it. You're still here. School is back in session, and footballs are in the air. Life's always better whenever the smell of pigskin is in the air, you know. And so uh, congratulations on all that. Uh, it's the second Sunday of September. Now, you guys are my 830 crowd, and so not as many of you have small children. But uh, in the 945 and 11 o'clock crowd, You'll notice, even though it's the second Sunday of September, people are already rolling in here exhausted on Sundays, even though we're just a couple weeks into the school year. Uh, It may surprise you to know that God expects you to be a little bit tired on Sunday mornings. That's why He gave you sermons, so that you can uh, catch up on your sleep on Sunday. Uh, God expects you to be diligently going about Uh, your work for six days, and then we have a day of the week that we set aside to rest, a day of the week that is the Lord's Day where we worship together, where we honor Him, and we recharge. He gave us the principle of the Sabbath, the Sabbath principle where we stop to see and seize the work of God in our lives. Now, in biblical days, the Sabbath was on Saturday. They would worship on Saturday. The word Sabbath literally means rest. You say, well, Ash, why, why don't we have our worship times on Saturday as Christians? Well, some Christian groups do, and there are, for a while, we even had a Saturday night service. But historically, beginning with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, Christian groups, those that followed Christ, began worshiping on Sunday because Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. And if you go back into the New Testament era, the Jerusalem believers, they would actually continue to practice the Sabbath after the resurrection of Jesus, and then they would gather for worship on on Sunday. And so that's why uh, we worship on Sunday. Now, God intended the Sabbath to be something that people would look forward to, that you had that one day a week where You didn't uh, have to toil. You didn't have to work. You could slow down, and you could spend time with your family, and you could worship, and you could uh, kick your feet up and just relax a little bit. And ideally, I hope that that is Sunday for you. Now, for some others, maybe Sunday doesn't work that way because after you leave church, you have to go to work or something of that nature. In my own life, uh, I work on Sundays, you know. Uh, you know, I'm here with you all, but I also put forth a lot of energy on, on Sunday. Some people think that preachers only work one day a week, 
And uh, then you complain that we work too long on that day. But uh, anyhow, uh, but, but Sunday's a, a heavy day for me, and so I try to make Friday my day that I set aside to really uh, listen to the Heavenly Father, spend time with family and unplug and just relax a little bit. The problem is, the problem has been, that from the moment God told us we need a Sabbath, human beings have been fighting against that. And human beings have been taking this day that was intended to uh, feed us spiritually and help us grow and help us relax and recharge and see the things of the Lord, and we've been making it more complicated. And we see that in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 this morning. The Bible says, On the Sabbath he passed through grain fields, and his disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So it's probably March or April. It's a beautiful day, and Jesus and the disciples are going through the grain fields. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 23 and 25, verse 25, the Bible had said that it's okay to uh, pick some grain from a person's field if you're hungry, and you can eat that so long as you don't use a sickle, essentially saying that if you're hungry, uh, this is part of the way that the community is going to take care of one another so that people don't go without food. And as long as you don't use a sickle and start taking too much, that that is perfectly fine. But then in verse 2, we once again run into this group called the Pharisees. You'll see that Jesus, throughout the entire book of Luke, is butting heads with the Pharisees, the spiritual referees. And they had taken the Sabbath and they had turned it into one big mess of rules. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't go here. In fact, they had two big books of rules that people were supposed to follow in regard to the Sabbath. And the only ones that really knew all the rules were them. And then they kept making new rules. And they had scribes that would write those rules down. And they had guys that would go around with a whistle and a notepad telling everybody that they were in charge. I think we've all uh, come across people like that before. And by the way, if you have to tell people that you're in charge, you're probably not in charge. So <clears throat> they see Jesus going through the grain field. Uh, and his disciples are, are eating this food. And they are... Uh, rubbing it in their hands, and they throw a yellow flag, and they say there are three penalties on the play. First of all, you're picking grain, then you're rubbing grain, and then you're eating grain. Fifteen yards on Jesus and the disciples. How could you possibly do this on the Sabbath day, Jesus, because everybody knows that picking grain, rubbing it, eating it, that that's work, and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. Well, Jesus answers them in verse 3. He says, haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And he even gave some of those who were with him. He even gave some to those who were with him. Now Jesus goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and the first six verses when David and his men were going out to battle and they were famished. 
in the tabernacle or in the temple, there was this consecrated bread. And David allows his men to eat the consecrated bread. Why? Because they were hungry. And even though it was set aside for a holy purpose, David knew that the Heavenly Father would want the men to be able to eat. And so Jesus is teaching here that the Pharisees' Sabbath rules do not take precedence over basic human needs. And so he says to the Pharisees, look, my disciples are hungry. Andrew, poor guy, he can't eat at Whataburger. He has food allergies. And John, he loves Chick-fil-A, but it's closed. And if Tex-Mex had been invented, we would be eating that. But none of that's here. So I told him. They could get some grain out of the grain fields, and they could eat. In verse 5, it says, then he told him these words. He told them this. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, at this point, Jesus throws the Pharisees into an absolute frenzy because he actually makes two big statements. Luke does not record the first one, but we see it in the Gospel of Mark. The first thing that Jesus said was, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now think about that. God gave us the Sabbath, and it is made for us, not us for the Sabbath. And then the second thing that Jesus said, he said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now Jesus is really upsetting these guys. If you'll remember, during the two years that we spent in Luke chapter 5, in the previous section, Jesus talked about how the Old Testament law was all pointing to Him. The entire point of the law and the prophets and the wisdom book were, were to point to Jesus. He talked about how people were fasting, and they were fasting for God to do something, preparing their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus said, you were fasting for me. John the Baptist baptism was pointing to Jesus. And now Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, the Sabbath is also pointing to me. You fasted and you rest in preparation for the coming of the Son of Man, The Son of Man is here, and guess who is Lord of the Sabbath? Jesus. Rest is actually one of the major themes of the Bible. It goes all the way back to Genesis. God created, and then after God worked six days, what did He do on the seventh day? He rested. In the Ten Commandments, that's where we first are introduced to the Sabbath principle where God told the nation of Israel that they should work all day or all week and then they should take a a day of rest. Whenever Israel left Egypt, they went to the promised land and the promised land was uh, pictured as a place of rest. The Bible often speaks of an inheritance that Christians will have. It is a symbol of rest as we think about the fact that we have lost Fred this week, we also understand 
that he has entered into rest. And so he is in his heavenly rest with the Son of God. And whenever someone that we love passes away, we often say the words, may they rest in peace. When Jesus comes again, Hebrews talks about the second coming, that Jesus will bring rest. Jesus said to us, Come to me, all of you who are, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you more work to do. Is that what he said? He said, no, come to me, and I will give you rest. Now you say, hey, I've come to Jesus. I've been saved. I grew up in church. I started spelling my name for the first time in macaroni uh, in children's church, and so I, I've been around for years, and I'm still tired. Well, Jesus didn't say that he was going to give us uh, an absence of stress, work, and fear. The rest that Jesus brings to us here on earth is the presence of God in you that replaces stress with faith and replaces your work with meaning and your fear with hope. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest even whenever you go through the great trials of life, as a believer, you can have joy in your soul whenever you have Christ in your heart. And so he tells us, come to me and I'll give you rest. Well, a few weeks ago, I went on my annual hiking trip. I have a group of friends that once a year, we will go to a national park and we'll just spend a week hiking out in the mountains. It's uh, really a centering time for me and a refreshing time. Well, the first day of our hike this year, we got up about four or five miles away from, from everybody, and it started raining on us. And then pretty soon, that rain turned to sleet, and it was not exactly a pleasant day up there. Well, uh, whenever I go hiking, one of the things I love to do is take a lot of pictures. And so I kept taking my phone out and taking pictures and all this, and then I'd put it back in, in, and it was just getting my, my jacket, even though it was a rain jacket, was getting wetter and wetter and wetter. And, and before I knew it, I had ruined my iPhone. My iPhone wouldn't come on anymore. And so so now here I am. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm out in the mountains, and I don't have a phone. I don't have a camera. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a youngin. I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a boy, you know. And uh, I, I grew up with this stuff, you know. So I don't know how to exist without technology. And so I'm up here uh, away from home, and, uh, and I don't have my phone. And I noticed for the first day, it was like I was in detox. It's like I, I didn't know what to do. I kept reaching, and you know, I'd see something I like, and I'm like reaching for my phone. It doesn't work. It doesn't, you know, I had to p- depend on my friends if I needed to try to uh, text my wife or anything of that nature, and it, it was just horrible. I couldn't, I couldn't function. But after a day of not having my phone, I found myself starting to relax a little bit. I found myself seeing things a little bit differently and unplugging and really enjoying nature. I always enjoy nature, but I found myself enjoying it even more. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to get rid of our cell phones, you know, erase that tweet if you're twittering that. Uh, I'm not saying that. You can have cell phones, and I realize that that's the world we live in and that we want to be able to communicate with friends and family and that they do a lot of great things for us. But one of the ironies of 21st century America 
is all the things that we have created to make our lives easier make life more exhausting. Have you noticed that? Uh, We have so many choices these days. It's not your fault. It's just the world we live in. Whenever church ends today, you'll ask this question, what's for lunch? Now, hopefully, you've already got something in the crock pot, and I'll be over about 1230 to eat it with you. But for many of us, we haven't thought that far ahead. And so that question will be asked. And you'll look at each other and go, I don't know, what do you want? I don't know, what do you want? And then the kids will pipe in and a family fight will start. And, you know, uh, and, and it used to be you had one or two choices. You know, you go to the Mexican restaurant in Murphy that used to close down. Or you could go to uh, uh, the, the McDonald's that was here. Now you got like a hundred choices to choose from. And all of that, it drains us in ways that we don't even realize. And then we have greater awareness. Because of technology, we take in so much information. You think about a tragedy like what we are remembering today, the 9-11 event that occurred. In most of human civilization, people would read about that in a newspaper, maybe see it at the movie theater or uh, going back before all of that. You might have the town herald that would come and let the people know that something terrible had occurred. And that would be your knowledge of the situation. You would see a few pictures, and that was about it. But going back to when 9-11 occurred, we spent days just glued to the television, did we not? And you would watch all those news stories, and you watched those planes go into those buildings over and over and over again, and all of this creates an overload of awareness because so much is coming to you all the time and it tempts you to worry about so many things that you don't have any control over. And then there's connectivity. I remember the day when people used to come to church to find out what everybody had been doing all week. And you would gather with your friends on Sunday and you would kind of catch up on the week. Now we come to church and a lot of us know what the other had for breakfast because they put it on Facebook or something like that. And so I remember the first time I, I came to church and I asked somebody about, well, how did, the, how did your, your uh, I think they had gone on a date the night before, and I asked them, I said, so how did your date go last night? And I felt so creepy because it's like, how am I supposed to know that he went on a date last night, but I'd seen it on Facebook. And so, uh, you know, now you just kind of get used to it because we're always connected. And what I'm saying here, again, we, we can't, I'm not saying we need to go back and change to say you can't do that. It just, it is what it is, but you need to be intentional about taking time in your life to rest and unplug from the world around you and then plug into God. You have to be intentional about this. And if you don't carve out that time, if you don't make it priority, other people are not going to carve it out for you. They will take all the time that you have. Unplug from the world. Plug into God. Now here's a pointed question. Is the Son of Man Lord of the Sabbath in your life? Is the Son of Man Lord of the Sabbath in your life? Now there's some formidable contenders for the spot of Lord. Family. Is family good? Yeah, it's a good thing. Should family be our Lord? No. Family, football, fun, food. 
All these things are good, especially football. We love it. But none of them are to play the role of Lord in our life. None of them are to come before the Lord in our priorities. I would call the disease spiritual blindness. It's a disease that is very prevalent in our churches today, a disease that's very prevalent in our society today. I think the main causes of this disease are sin and then a failure to slow down and then an embracing of the wrong things as priority. If you go too fast for too long, If you prioritize the wrong things over the Lord of all things, eventually you struggle to hear the voice of God, to see the work of God around you, and you begin to suffer from spiritual blindness. You say, well, Ash, I'm not doing doing things that are wrong. I just have a a real busy life. I understand that. I, I struggle with the same thing. But if you go too fast for too long, if you prioritize the wrong things and let other people prioritize the wrong things for you for too long, eventually you get to that point where you, you can't hear the voice of God because you never slow down long enough. And often God speaks to us in a still, small voice. And you're going so fast that God is doing stuff around you, but you just miss it because you're just going right past it. And because of that, you wind up suffering from spiritual blindness. We see this in the next section on uh, verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. How dare he heal on the Sabbath? so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts, and he told the man with the paralyzed hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Now it's the Sabbath again. Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. It was a circular type teaching formation where people would be sitting around around the circle, and Jesus was teaching uh, sitting there in the middle. And there's a man in attendance who has a paralyzed right hand. Now, it's significant that the Bible says that it was his right hand because your right hand uh, was your eating hand. And a person needed their right hand. If your right hand was paralyzed, it would cause you to be a social outcast. People thought you were cursed. You were unwelcomed at the table. That right hand was essential within the the fabric of the society. And so Jesus sees this man who is hurting, and he also sees the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had become spiritually blind because they valued their rules more than they valued people. And it had caused them not to be able to see a hurting man right in front of them. In fact, 
because of all these rules that they had developed. They just saw the man as cursed. They didn't understand that he was loved by God. Well, Jesus looked at him and he was moved with a compassion, Mark tells us. And so Jesus tells him to get up and stand right there in front of the crowd. Now, I would imagine this paralyzed man, he was probably a little bit shy about that, wasn't he? And after all, he wasn't really welcomed in many places in society. And Jesus says, hey, get up. I want you to stand up here. I want you to stand up in front of all these religious teachers. I want you to come right here in the middle and stand. It would be similar to me saying, hey, get out of your seat. Come on up here. Some of y'all would be like, I don't like getting in front of people, Lash. But he gets up. He obeys Jesus. And then Jesus says to him in verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to save life or destroy it? So Jesus asks, is the Sabbath about doing good or evil? Is the Sabbath about saving life or destroying it? Why did God give us the Sabbath? For good or for evil? To save life or destroy it? What's your answer, Pharisees? The Pharisees are, about, are like, come on, Jesus, you know what the Sabbath's about. It's about doing nothing. You just sit. You don't do anything. You don't heal. You don't, you don't, you don't do anything on the Sabbath. Now, this is a good question for a church. Do we gather on Sundays to do good, to do evil, or to do nothing? You say, well, certainly we don't gather here to do evil. Well, I agree with you. (laughs) Unfortunately, though, I think a lot of times churches fall into the trap of doing nothing. And the church becomes a stained glass monastery. We gather on Sundays, and we have our Bible study, and we take care of our own. We take the talents and the resources that God has given us, and we bury them. We eat a lot. We complain a lot. Complain about everybody else. But in a lot of churches throughout our land, they aren't doing anything. They're just kind of taking care of our own and enjoying being with people that think just like we do and Act just like we do and love the Lord. There's no mission out, no mission work, no outward movement. It's the tragedy of safety, where your focus becomes taking care of yourself so much that you can't even see the opportunities around you. When I was a director of missions, one of the things that I would do frequently is I'd go in and I would help churches uh, uh, get back on mission and develop their core values and begin moving outward. And in every church that I worked with that was declining in our attendance and fighting off and really struggling just to keep things going, there was a common symptom. They had all turned the attention on themselves. They were trying to be very, very safe. They were trying to make sure that everybody was taken care of and they didn't spend any time at all worrying about the community that they were in. They'd become unevangelistic. So much can change in a church if we just take the focus from ourselves 
to the people that live around us, to the people that are hurting around us, and we begin thinking about how can we take the gospel that Jesus Christ has given us and go and make disciples. Does that sound familiar at all, go and make disciples? It should, because it's the great commission that Jesus gave us. Go and make disciples to the ends of the earth, and I'll be with you always. Over time, whenever we quit focusing on that, uh, the environment becomes toxic. And before you know it, you have a dying church, and you have a spiritually blind church. The man with the paralytic hand could come sit in our midst, and we wouldn't even notice. Well, in verse 10, after looking around at them all, he told, he told them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. What a miracle. Praise the Lord. Can I get an amen? All right. But now look at the reaction in verse 11. They, however, talking about the Pharisees, were filled with rage. They were angry that Jesus had restored this man's hand. And they started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Mark tells us that the Pharisees began discussing with the Herodians, people that they didn't like, as to how they might kill Jesus. How dare he heal a man on the Sabbath? Let's kill him for that. Verse 11 is pathetic. A man is healed. And the church people are filled with rage, leaving the synagogue, talking about how they can get back at Jesus. I found a journal entry that I had written on this passage a few years ago. And this is what I I wrote in my journal as I was reading the passage and studying it. Being a Christian Pharisee is the equivalent of being a Christian snob. You usually start off with God's blessings And then after a while, you think you deserve those blessings and that everyone else is beneath you. You think the problem with the world is that they just need to be like you. And before you know it, you've lost touch with reality. And the only people that you want to hang out with are other Pharisees. You have your Christian things, but you've lost your Christian heart. Jesus was always helping hurting people. And he was reaching out to people that others didn't even see. If you go back and look at the previous section, he heals the leper, the social outcast. He calls the tax collector Matthew, the despised crooked businessman, to be a part of his inner circle. He heals the crippled. He continually embraced those that others thought were beyond the reach of grace. Mercy is the intersection where compassion and capacity converge. Sometimes we have compassion. We'd like to do something for someone, but we don't have the capacity to do anything about it. And sometimes we have the capacity to do something, but we don't have compassion. Jesus demonstrates here what it looks like. When our compassion and our capacity converge and he takes his power and he takes his heart, his compassionate heart, 
and he helps the people. She was a redheaded little girl, an orphan child that nobody paid any attention to. She just lived with whoever would take her in. And nobody really noticed her. She would come into a school, and the next year she'd be in a different school. When she was a young teenager, there were two summer missionaries came to her town there in Arkansas. Instead of ignoring her, they saw her. They came from a church that cared enough to send some missionaries to do some work. And they saw her, and they loved her, and they shared the story of Jesus Christ with her. And God saved her. This little girl knew very little about love, but she was able to experience the love of her heavenly Father. That little girl grew up, and she gave birth to me. It's my mom. And I'm so thankful for churches that see and seize the work of God. For churches and individuals that are willing to extend the hand of mercy. I know that we as a church can't meet all the needs in the world. You as an individual can't meet all the hurting needs around you. You don't have that capacity. But it starts with having a heart that is open to compassion. It starts with having eyes that are are seeing the work of God. It starts with having a soul that slows down long enough to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit so that as you go about your day, you're able to see where God is working and have compassion for those who are hurting. And when God gives you the capacity to meet the need, you obey and you follow Him. And when a church, when individuals listen to the voice of God and follow Him, it's amazing the difference that we can make. The lives that can be changed when we simply see what God is doing and seize those opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And so here's my prayer for us today, that like our Lord, we will be willing to extend, extend hands of mercy to those who are in need. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we come to a time of commitment. Heavenly Father, we have been so richly blessed. I thank you, Lord, that the vast majority of us enjoy a nice place to live. We enjoy good meals. We enjoy great blessing. Help us to realize, Lord, that you are the source of that blessing. And I pray that you will help us to slow down, to tune in, to hear your voice, and to see where it is that you are at work. Help us, Lord, not to get so busy that we become too busy for God. And Father, we are mindful that within our church, within our community, that on our street, there are people who are hurting. And you have placed us here to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that we might extend the hand of mercy, that we will follow the Holy Spirit, 
and that we will have stories of how God is at work on our street, of how God is at work in our city, that we will have stories of how God is working in our life group and in our, in our church. Thank you, Lord, for those that are serving to take the gospel out. I thank you for those that will go to our senior communities today, for those that will be a part of our Spanish worship, of our Asian Indian worship, of those that will be leading an ESL uh, uh, this Wednesday night. I thank you, Lord, for those that are working so hard to take the gospels, uh, take the gospel across culture, across geographical boundaries to reach out to the lost and lonely. And I ask, Lord, that we will not be a people that turn our attention onto ourselves fight with one another, tear each other down, and become Pharisees. But may we be a people that capture the Spirit of Christ and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, making disciples in His name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.